What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. One of my favorite character types are monsters. I love to read about all kinds of monsters. But especially in children's books, they are great to read about because the monsters here are often more cute and endearing than scary. One of my favorite recent picture books with a really great monster is called Quit Calling Me a Monster by Jory John and Bob Shea. Even though he's technically a monster because he has horns and purple fur, does not mean that he likes to be called that. When he's shopping for groceries or just trying to get some sleep under your bed, there is no need to call him a monster when you could call him by name. He is Floyd, after all. Setting out a very good argument, Floyd lets readers know that even though he does everything you might expect from a monster, this does not mean that he should be treated like one. He just wants you to get to know him as a person or monster. Conversing directly with the reader, Floyd's conversational and direct style makes the text of this book very endearing. Through both the text and the pictures, we get to know Floyd's monster nature, but they also allow readers to realize they might just be misinterpreting what Floyd's outsides make him on the inside. Depicted with gangly limbs and rough fur saturated with dark tones, Floyd is equal parts endearing and scary making the style of the illustrations a perfect complement to the text and the theme. There is a great message here about not stereotyping or judging, but it is so well woven into Floyd's banter that it is not didactic in any way. So take a tip from Rachel's World, and if you want a book with subtle touches of humor that will prove to be a great read aloud and a great discussion starter for conversations about empathy, you might just want to get to know Floyd. If you want to see the big picture of what it means to create books for children, you'll want to consider the matter of illustration. What is the role of illustration in a book or publication? Artist and author Beth Ann Anderson talks to Rachel about this process and what an artist goes through, often creating multiple versions of an illustration to enhance a story. Anderson teaches illustration at BYU. She studied art at BYU's Department of Visual Arts and at the Florence Academy of Art. Here's Rachel and Beth Ann Anderson. We're in studio with Beth Ann today. Welcome, Beth Ann. Thank you. You know, I think we're going to start out with a controversial statement. Um, both of us don't believe that there is such a thing called talent. I know. And I think, you know, our audience out there is going to know, ah, there's there, that. But let's let's explain that. Why, why don't you believe that talent isn't really something... That exists. Well, I I have watched so many students, and you know, I, I this will be my nineteenth year teaching. And what I've noticed, the students that I thought, oh my gosh, they're are you really in art? What you're going to starve? <laughs> you know? And then within a short amount of time, they are the most successful, and so. I would say in noticing them, they didn't have a talent at one time, 
and they are completely self-sufficient and very good at their craft. And next, and so my thought, and a lot of people, you know, say it's so much inspiration and so much perspiration, but I, it has caused me not to believe in talent as much as hard work. I have just watched too many people just blossom that work hard. And I've watched a lot of people come in that think they were um, God's gift to the world, totally flounder or flounder. What's the word? Flounder, whatever <laughs> flounder, it is. Flounder, thank Fla- you. Fla- any yeah, version that of that and works really for me. really do a nosedive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, anyway, so I thought about this, and we had a guest lecture by Gregory Manchez, a famous uh, American illustrator who is – a wonderful artist, but 10 times more wonderful as a person, a really incredible man. And he came and talked about talent, and he gave a specific lecture, uh, uh, particularly highlighting Mozart and Michelangelo. And, you know, you couldn't think of two more talented, you know, people. And yet... The thing that was impressive is the work they put into it. If you think Mozart did this from a very young age, although, you know, a little encouraged by his father, but, you know, after his father's influence, he's still going strong, writing his first symphony in his teens, you know, um, passing away in his 30s after writing all this incredible. So what I came away thinking about it is that if you your talent or your gift is really the ability to keep going at it, you know, getting through the rejections, getting through rough comments that people make and going, thanks, I still have, you know, a focus and I'm still going after something that I need to do. And I think that's really the talent I think you're so right. I think it really is perseverance. And yeah. I think anybody can truly develop that. It always breaks my heart when I talk particularly to adults and, you know, they see me doing some kind of artistic work and they, oh, I just am not talented. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you are. No, you are. And, and I feel so badly when people look at children's art or, you know, children's creativity and, oh, you know, you're just not talented. You shouldn't pursue that. And I'm like, Please don't tell them that because it really is about this perseverance and you really can do it if you focus. So tell us maybe about a time that you had that rejection or you had that in your face negativity and how did you persevere through it? Well, um, I have a theory. I think all art's killed by the fifth grade. (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed that or not. I would agree and it's so sad. It is so sad. I, I I will give you a personal experience that I had with my son that I thought was interesting. I mean, we would sit and draw, and he had no hang-ups in drawing or anything. Just loved to do it. Did incredible, crazy things, as all children really do. And they're telling their own stories and everything. Well, they had an art show um, at school, I think he was in the second grade, and he did this self-portrait that, you know, with one eye bigger than the other and the hair, and it was gorgeous. It looked like a 
Dufay. <laughs> I just <laughs> loved it. And I said, oh, honey, put this in the art show. You know, I mean, he could pick anything he wanted. And he goes, yeah, I really like that, too. And he took it to school and was re- totally rejected and told, that doesn't look like anything. And the thing that got in uh, the second grade art show was all the same sailboats. And I remember thinking, and it really discouraged him. And, you know, his talents were in other things or his drive, you know. But I thought, you know, wh- wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was an instant didn't ever want to pick up a pencil again, you know. Now, if I gave that to someone else, oh, you didn't like that one? Okay, well, I'm just going to keep making them. There's a whole difference there in thinking, and I think that's where perseverance, there's something in someone's personality that's really, watch me, I'm going to keep doing this, you know. Prove you wrong. <laughs> and, and I really like that sense that, you know, sometimes we have an affinity or a drive to a particular thing and not to another thing. I mean, visual arts has never been my right. affinity, but it's right. obviously yours. But, you know, I think that sometimes we do things as adults or we do things as teachers or parents that actually prevent children from finding that affinity, like this example you gave with your son. I mean, he may have had more of an affinity to art if that hadn't have happened. Right. So how do we how do we prevent that? How do we not make those kinds of mistakes? And how do we encourage kids to find their own affinity? Well, first of all, I love art education. So I'm just saying maybe this was, you know, a fluke moment, but I was really moved by it. You know, that is a hard question. I mean, don't we all wish we could go back and reteach our children or our neighbors or ourselves and be a little more resilient? I think sometimes if you don't understand the genre that they're in, for example, if somebody's doing math and doing incredible, I wouldn't understand the genre, but I would say, and I really respect your drive in this. Or I would, you know, really get down to the characteristics of that uh, person or student. Do you know what? I see in you a real need to solve this. Or I, you know, and kind of be more encouraging. I, You know, we're here for such a short time. <laughs> and learning is such a short time. What, what, we try to do is in the design department is to make students problem solvers for life. You know, this is a good start. Now you're going to keep solving problems, you know, and you have to come up with a certain resilience to go through and keep solving it. How how do you think this should all start? I mean, what are some basics that that all, if kids want to be artists or they want to develop this kind of lifelong talent that they're going to achieve these great things later on, where do they start? What are some basics? What would you recommend? (laughs) In the house making a mess. (laughs) I love it. I know. (laughs) You've got got to be the type of mother I had where she turned an eye to the mess and not... (laughs) That didn't let worry about it for a while. So I think there's a certain freedom. I 
Talk to a mother that said, I have a child that draws. At night, they go to bed, and they'll go down under their bed with a flashlight and draw on the back of the mattress all night. And I thought, amazing. Let that baby go. (laughs) (laughs) And the mother's thinking, no. (laughs) And And they were wondering if something was wrong. And I said, no, you just start getting pads of paper and stretch them all across your wall. Whatever they need to do, they're doing it, you know. Um, And the other thing, take them to museums. Show them what other artists. But never say, you should do this or you should do that. Let that kind of be more free. Um, would be my suggestion. I love that sense of playfulness because I think that's really where all the practice of art starts with this sense of playfulness. And then you start getting some more structure where you learn techniques or things that, you know, that you need to do and that you need to understand some principles and theories and things that you really need to understand. But it really all starts with that that messy playfulness. <laughs> That's right. I I teach a sketchbook class and I don't give problems to solve. They just can draw. So I say all we're going to do for six hours a week is draw. And you should see the looks on their faces. It's like, really? We get to do anything we want? And it is the most joyous thing I think I've ever done in school is just to let them go out and draw and be creative. I love that. That's a perfect way to end. So hopefully we'll have more messes in in our <laughs> listeners' homes who can right. develop this beautiful affinity for drawing and art and perseverance to maybe yeah. make it into one of your classes someday. <laughs> you right. never know. Right. Thanks so much, Beth Ann. Thanks, Rachel. Illustrator and author Beth Ann Anderson talking about the role of illustration in a book and the artistic process. Next, Rachel visits with Rebecca Sansom. Sansom is a BYU chemistry teaching professor who co-founded the BYU Chem Camp for elementary-aged students. Chem Camp gives kids, both boys and girls, hands-on experiences in science. She also advocates exposing children to other places like this in the community. Rebecca Sansom has taught high school science in Massachusetts and Utah, and has master's degrees in chemistry and education from Harvard University and Southern Utah University. Here's Rebecca and Rachel. We're in studio with Rebecca today. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. You co-founded a science camp, a summer science camp here at Brigham Young University to help kids in fourth through sixth grade just get some extra experience in science. So maybe tell our listeners a little bit about why you decided you thought we needed this experience. Yeah, so... Um, I It was a great privilege to work with some of my colleagues. I worked with Jennifer Nielsen, Dan S., and Kara Stowers, all from the chemistry department, to put this camp together. And um, I think we had a variety of motivations for, for why we wanted to do it. The most important, that there was a need in the community. You know, at BYU, we have tons of sports camps and dance camps and theater camps and English camps and writing camps and everything, and there was no science camp. Um, There was one engineering camp that was for middle schoolers, but we really wanted to target this sort of fourth through sixth grade group because that's where we see that students start to lose interest in science, and we really want to encourage that. And um, we thought it would make a great connection Uh, if we could sort of keep them engaged over this fourth through sixth grade, then maybe they would continue on to this engineering camp that's available in the middle school. Um, 
So so we really wanted to target that group. And we also were – we wanted to target girls. Um, and so we made sure that the camp had an equal number of boys and girls, which doesn't sound amazing, um, except that, you know, we've seen in the other camp, like in the engineering camps, they only have about 20 percent girls that are participating in the camp. So we really wanted to make sure that there was um, equal participation by boys and girls. Definitely that was – that's – the biggest goal is just to to encourage those students to be engaged with and enjoy and have fun with science, to picture themselves as scientists, uh, to realize that they can do science. We did some complex experiments with them, especially for fourth through sixth graders, and um, to just have them have that sort of positive identity experience. So describe one of these complex experiments that you did. What what yeah. was it? Well, um, I think the most complicated experiment we did was um, what's called a titration with vitamin C. Okay. I want to know what that is. Yeah. I have no clue. <laughs> that just so, went over yeah. my head. <laughs> um, so a titration is just like a way to do a chemical reaction that's sort of slow. So you can tell when it ends. So normally if you see – you see, imagine a chemist, they have these two beakers and they mix stuff together and it goes poof and like the reaction is done. In a titration, you do it in a controlled way. So you just add something really slowly, just a little bit at a time so you can find out when the reaction is done. Um, and we looked at a system that's a really interesting system with vitamin C. So vitamin C people may know as an antioxidant, um, which means it sort of protects your cells from oxidizing agents. And uh, our oxidizing agent was iodine. And um, just like the same stuff that you would use to clean skin before a wound or something like that, but iodine. And, um, and then we used starch as an indicator. It's all kind of complicated. But the iodine and the starch react together. They turn blue. Um, the vitamin C protects the starch like it would do in your body. Uh, it protects the starch from the iodine because it reacts with the iodine. So uh, the vitamin C is like an antioxidant. The iodine is the oxidant, and it protects the starch from getting iodided. Iodided. <laughs> <laughs> I love that word. That's, a, that's, a, that's a sort of not totally entirely correct chemical explanation, but good enough, I think. <laughs> um, so so uh, it was pretty complex. There were these three different things going on, and um, it involved some, you know, using... Uh, we had a known solution and an unknown solution, so we had to figure out how much vitamin C is in this unknown solution and um, related that back to what vitamin C do you need um, and, and how does that work in your body? How does it protect your body from, from bad things like the oxidants? Um, and so it was a great experiment. I love that sense of the hands-on nature mm-hmm. of science. And I think sometimes we forget how hands-on science should be. And I really like the sense that some of these kind of experiences can put that hands-on stuff back in. So mm-hmm. so how important do you think is that actually doing experiments mm-hmm. and having that hands-on piece? How important is that for learning science? Yeah, you know, I think it's really essential. And... Um, Especially for kids, I think that we associate science for kids as really essentially being hands-on. Um, obviously, when you go to college, you can sit in a lecture and, and, um, and study a bunch of equations or whatever and, and call it science. But um, really, the hands-on part is, is what's 
what's essential for kids. And I think that that's the thing that really helps them develop a sense of being a scientist. And so it was it was so great to have the students come to the university and they were in the labs at the university and they were using beakers and pipettes and different glassware and um, measuring things out carefully. And all of that is is an important part of of that sort of um, self-efficacy, like that I, I believe that I'm capable of being a scientist. I think that word self-efficacy is so important, no matter what you're doing. And particularly with science, I think that that's really a challenge because a lot of people don't feel like Mm -hmm. they're capable of doing it. So how did you see this experience maybe helping the self-efficacy of the students that you were working with? Um, well, you know, we we did a little survey just out of curiosity, like a pre-post survey to see um, what, whether students thought like, yeah, I can be a scientist um, or I might do science later when I grow up. Um, and we, we actually saw a statistically significant increase in, in their sense of uh, self-identity as a scientist. So it was really exciting. I mean, it was just the first year that we did it and it was only three days. Um, but we were really, really pleased to see that there is actually a measurable difference in in how they felt about being a scientist. I think that really shows that these kind of hands-on, really personal experiences can help. And, you know, if people are here around BYU, they might be able to take uh, the opportunity to come to this chem camp. But if they're not around BYU, mm-hmm. what are some of the places or things that, that you might recommend that they could do to maybe start building their yeah. own sense of self-efficacy with science? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that there are um, opportunities all around us, but you have to kind of look for them sometimes. So, you know, here in Utah, we've got a great informal science education association that includes things like the the Natural History Museum at Thanksgiving Point, the the Bean Museum, um, and and other organizations like that, the Leonardo that are here in in the Utah area. But all over, there's going to be science museums, and there's some fantastic science museums all over the country. And a lot of them actually offer um, sort of hands-on opportunities for students to come in and do science. Um, I visited Dallas, and there was there's a science museum there. It's an amazing science museum. It's so amazing. It's like one of the best I've ever been to. But they actually have a whole lab where students can come in and uh, isolate their DNA. Very How cool, cool is that, right? That's, I'm going to Dallas. <laughs> I know. So, so um, and, and there are programs like that, you know, at the, at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. They have programs for school children to come in and actually look at some of the specimens, you know, um, touch them, measure them, see how everything is, 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 works there. And so there's just amazing opportunities for, for things like that. And they, they exist all over the country. Those are a couple of examples. Um, but I would say contact a local science museum and, and, it's likely that there is some kind of way to have a hands-on experience at the museum. There are, there are so many books about science. The National Science Teachers Association actually has a ton of books that are about science for children. And um, anyone can purchase them. There's a great book that was actually written by a Utah author, Sarah Young, um, that's about cooking uh, the science of cooking. And um, so all kinds of cool experiments that you can do that are hands-on and 
uh, have that those sort of elements that are important, like what's the question that we're asking here? How are we investigating it? How do we make a controlled experiment? So we're only testing one variable at a time. Um, all of those things that are really important in terms of actual science instead of sort of you know, we're having fun. Uh, but you can still have fun and be serious scientists too. So let's go down that path. How do you still have fun and be a serious <laughs> scientist? I mean, how do you meld the two? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, well, I think the chemistry camp was just a great example. Those kids had a blast. Um, it was so fun. But, you know, we really got into one, one thing that we got into that was a pretty deep chemistry concept, a fundamental concept is this idea of quantities and proportions. So for example, even with the vitamin C experiment that I described, um, they were really looking at how much of this uh, iodine do I have to add until my vitamin C is gone. So so what's the proportion between these things? They did an experiment where they made pancakes, uh, which sounds pretty fun for kids, yeah. right? And um, they ate them all, even the ones that didn't taste good. Um, <laughs> and they varied you know, the quantity that they were adding of baking soda. And did an experiment where they measured how how well the pancakes turned brown and how fluffy they were and what they tasted like. And you can actually taste when you have too much baking soda, the pancakes taste a little bit bitter because baking soda is a base. And if you didn't have enough baking soda, then they taste a little bit acidic because you have too much of the uh, lemon juice or vinegar that you add as the, as the acid. So there's a very sensory way to experience this idea of the quantities and proportions. And so um, they had a lot of fun doing all these experiments, but they also started to get a sense of this important chemistry concept. So I think, how do you have fun at the same time as doing real science? I think that doing real science is fun. You know, for me anyway, I think, because you, you can learn something. And learning is fun. Yeah. Kids love learning. I love that. I think that that is just encapsulates this whole essence of this so beautifully, that it's just a wonderful experience that we can we can open up the world to our students through museums or camps or the library or our kitchen cupboards. There's just all of these options. So as we kind of close up today, what what is kind of one tip that you would have for parents out there to maybe help them, you know, get some energy about helping their kids be more involved in science? Hmm. Um, well, I think... Uh, I think it's important. I think I mentioned this earlier. I'm not sure if it was in this. Repeat it again. Yet, but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I think it's important to just pay attention to what your kids are doing and what they're interested in and encourage that. And, you know, obviously it would be awesome if there were more girls in science and we'd love that. We'd love more people in science in general. We need more people in science in terms of like the workforce and all of that. But um, each kid is going to have their own interests. And whatever those are, I think just encourage it. Encourage the expression of their natural abilities and interests. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Teaching professor Rebecca Sansom of the BYU Chemistry Department discussing how we can encourage our kids, including girls, in the sciences through activities found in our communities. We finish up today's program with some well-known and much-beloved poetry by Emily Dickinson, shared by Leanna Tan of BYU Radio. Faith is a Fine Invention by Emily Dickinson Faith is a fine invention, one gentleman can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. I'm nobody. Who are you? by Emily Dickinson. 
I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog. To tell one's name the live-long June to an admiring bog? Nature is What We See by Emily Dickinson Nature is what we see. The hill, the afternoon, squirrel, eclipse, the bumblebee. Nay, nature is heaven. Nature is what we hear. The bobolink, the sea, thunder, the cricket. Nay, nature is harmony. Nature is what we know, yet have no art to say. So impotent our wisdom is to her simplicity. Leanna Tan, reading three poems by Emily Dickinson. Never shy away from sharing poetry with children. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.